Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. The Man Who Saw the Light Over Winter Hill by Ian Gordon Eight, the complex. I felt a bit queasy, dazed by whatever it was I'd been subjected to. It took me a few minutes to gather my senses. My ears were ringing, my eyes were stinging. There was a weird taste in my mouth, like the bitterest licorice you can possibly imagine. My fingers and toes were tingling, like they were thawing out, and my head was killing me. I felt like I'd been hit by a train, for God's sake. I wasn't sure at the time, but I figured I'd blacked out when the light flashed overhead. Either that, or I'd been instantaneously transported from Crooked Edge Hill to, well, wherever I'd ended up. I was standing in a long corridor, a dark passage marked out by the occasional light embedded in the ceiling. The space was reminiscent of the kind of concrete-lined tunnel you might find in a military bunker. It was grey and uninviting, but quiet and warm, suggestive of a subterranean location. I looked down at my coat and saw that a layer of fresh snowflakes still clung to my shoulders and upper arms. I slackened my snow-sprinkled scarf and took a moment to reflect. My theory was that I'd followed my double into some sort of hidden facility, a secret base under the moor, from where, in all likelihood, that yelping thing had emerged on Christmas Eve. The flash of light was probably an aspect of some technical process beyond my reckoning, a process by which a door or hatch was opened, permitting entry. Who knows? But there I was, up to my eyeballs in trouble, no doubt. I set off in a straight line looking, first and foremost, for a way out. It's strange. As a boy, I used to look up at Winterhill and imagine that the entirety of the moor was nothing more than a skin covering a gargantuan spaceship, a craft that, according to my fancy, had crashed on Earth millions of years ago and had gradually been consumed by the landscape over the ensuing epochs. A silly idea, of course, but not quite so far-fetched as it used to sound, given my present circumstances, if, after all, the tunnel through which I trod was situated in the ground beneath the moor. I walked for a good ten minutes or so, one tingling step after another, before reaching an opening in the wall to my right. This led to a large chamber, at the centre of which stood a vast, tall vat filled with a yellowish liquid, I didn't like the look of that, so I got out of there quickly. Another ten minutes, and I came across another opening in the wall to my right. A second chamber yawned before me, like a big old hungry mouth. I heard sounds back there. Pops, clicks, and hisses. More equipment, I thought. Not for my eyes. And on I went along the corridor, till eventually I reached the end of it where a pair of double doors presented themselves. 
I pushed them open tentatively and stepped into the room beyond. This was a much smaller space compared to the chambers I'd seen. The first thing that hit me was the smell. It was like the smell of supermarket mints when you remove the plastic packaging. Oh, it was foul. The room itself was very much like your archetypal chemistry lab at school, with rows of benches covered with Bunsen burners, conical flasks, and other paraphernalia. But standing in the corner of the room, by what looked to be a large black door, was another vat, like a smaller version of the one containing the fluid in the first chamber I'd entered. This, it soon became apparent, was the source of the appalling smell. Inside, its bulging hands pressed against the glass, floated a horribly broad, colourless mass of flesh in the shape of something that might have just about passed for humanoid. I don't know how to describe it. To me, it seemed as though a team of insane scientists had been tasked with the job of producing something resembling a human being from off-cuts of meat. The thing was truly horrifying to behold, and that smell oozing out of the top of the open vat just seemed to intensify the longer I stood there. What was this place? What kind of experiments had been conducted here? I approached the vat and saw, scattered across a small table to the side of it, a set of handwritten notes jotted down in English, journal style. After reading them, I pocketed them. They give a flavour of what was going on down there. Somehow I made it out with them. So here they are in all their brevity, with redactions denoted as blank. Entry 1. November 2nd, 1991. The hushed corridors of this place hurt my ears, and the weight of responsibility bears down on my shoulders. The fusion of blank is no easy feat, but the pressure to deliver results is immense. The canisters loom in the lab, filled with the promise of unprecedented scientific achievement. I'm consumed by it, at my wit's end with it. What must I do to unlock the potential hidden within these blank genomes? Entry 2, November 13th, 1991 I'm exhausted. We're all exhausted. A relentless whirlwind of blank sequencing, selection and integration. The delicate dance of human and blank genetic material demands precision, and the stakes are higher than ever. The canisters pulse with potential, every heartbeat a reminder of the expectations placed upon us. My colleagues work diligently, but I feel the burden of time pressing against us, trampling us underfoot. We're on the precipice of greatness, or blank. The blank algorithm is proving to be an intricate puzzle. The life forms exhibit glimpses of blank, but refinement is essential. The walls are closing in, and every moment spent fine-tuning feels like a stolen breath. The pressure is palpable, an unrelenting force pushing us towards an elusive breakthrough. The clandestine nature of our work intensifies the burden. We're entrusted with a power that could reshape the blank. Failure is not an option. Entry 3. December 1st, 1991. Blank trials are underway, and the canisters are teeming with activity. And yet... Doubt continues to hold me in its inexorable grip. 
The ethical considerations trouble me greatly, but such things are of no concern to blank. They want what they want, and who am I to argue with them? Besides, there's no going back now. One of them opened its eyes this morning. Blank says it's a whir. I don't know. It isn't ready yet. We aren't ready yet. Not for that. No wonder I can't sleep. Haven't slept in days. Entry 4. December 23rd, 1991. Today marks a critical juncture. The life-forms have exhibited blank capabilities beyond our initial projections. My elation is tinged with trepidation as we tread into uncharted territory. The pressure, unyielding, lingers in every decision, every calculation. The canisters, once vessels of potential, now seem like chambers of both promise and peril. God help us. Entry 5. January 3rd, 1992. As we embark on long-term stability testing, the blank of our creation weighs on my conscience. The canisters have become both cradle and crucible for these creatures. The pressure to prove the viability of our experiment, to meet the expectations of those who watch from the shadows, is relentless. The balance between scientific curiosity and ethical responsibility becomes more precarious with each passing day. But what else can we do? We must continue our work, continue diligently, until success or blank. My fingertips hurt. I didn't know what to make of the notes at the time. Those frustrating redactions conceal vital information. But now, on reflection, I think I can fill in the blanks. But that'll come later. Eager to be out of that grisly place, the distress of that unnamed scientist almost palpable in the fetid air, I approached the black door next to the nauseous vat, holding my nose as I went. But on closer inspection, I found that it was no ordinary door. Yes, it stood vertically as a door tends to stand, but the opening was simply a void black rectangle, beyond which nothing whatsoever could be seen. Was this what it was like to stand at the event horizon of a black hole? And then, impelled by a force I couldn't reconcile, I stepped through it. 